Have you ever read something or come across something that just completely startled you because you'd never heard it before? Not too many things. Most of the time you read something, it might be interesting, but you don't find it startling as if you've never heard it before in your life. I grew up in the church all my life. And when I read this one chapter from one book some years ago, I said to myself, I've never heard that before in my whole life. And yet, it was about one of the most common subjects that you hear every single week in every church that you've ever been in the whole world throughout all of history. Every week you hear about it, and yet I'd never once heard it. I'm about to read to you something written by a man who I happen to like a lot. His name is Charles Swindoll. In one of his books, it's called Strengthening Your Grip. He has a little chapter in that book. It's called Strengthening Your Grip on Prayer. And he said some things I've never heard before in my life or ever since. This is what he wrote. I should tell you up front that this is not going to be your basic religious-sounding chapter on prayer. Sorry, I just don't have it in me. No, I'm not sorry. To be painfully honest with you, most of the stuff I have ever read or heard about prayer has either left me under a ton and a half truckload of guilt or wearied me with some pious-sounding cliches and meaningless God talk. Without trying to be ultra-cynical, I frequently have walked away thinking, who needs it? Because I didn't spend two or three grueling hours a day on my knees as dear Dr. So-and-so did, or because I failed to say it just the right way, whatever that means, or because I wasn't able to weave several scripture verses through my prayer, or because I had not been successful in moving mountains, I picked up the distinct impression that I was out to lunch when it came to this aspect of the Christian life. It almost seemed spooky, mystical, and dare say it, a little superstitious. A lot of verbal mumbo-jumbo laced with secret jargon some people had and others didn't, and I definitely didn't. I in no way wish to be disrespectful by saying the following things, but I believe it's time somebody declared them to help clarify the barrier that keeps us from entering into authentic prayer. That barrier is the traditional wrappings we have placed around prayer. Not even the grand models of church history admitted to much joy or peace or satisfaction in their prayer life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, for example, once admitted that his prayer experience was something to be ashamed of. The German reformer Martin Luther anguished in prayer, saving three of the best hours every day to pray, and yet he seldom seemed satisfied. Go down through the list, and you will find one after another working hard at prayer, but frequently will find they're dissatisfied, some of them even woefully unhappy about their prayer life. At the risk of sounding downright heretical, I'm convinced that for centuries Christians have forced prayer into a role it was never designed to play. I would suggest that we have made it difficult, hard, even painful. The caricature that has emerged through years of traditional, not biblical modeling is now a guilt-giving discipline, not an anxiety-relieving practice. 
It is self-imposed. It does not come from God. Are you ready for a shocker? You don't find any of that in the scriptures. Except in few and very extreme cases, prayer is neither long nor hard. And I cannot find any biblical characters who struggled with guilt because they didn't pray long enough or because they weren't in enough pain or because they failed to plead and beg sufficiently. Check it out for yourself. It isn't there. And he goes on. I've done this many, many times. I've asked groups of people like you, and I've done this now with way, way, way more than a thousand people, thousands. I ask people like you, sitting in pews, how many of you feel guilty about your prayer life? And guess what happens? Let me ask you, how many of you feel guilty about your prayer life? All of us, of course. And then I go this. There are 1,000 people in this book. Do you, how many of them feel guilty about their prayer life? Thank you, that's right. Zero. Why is it that you go into every church everywhere in the world and every single Christian you meet feels guilty about your prayer life, but in God's word, there's not one? Not one. Why? Why do we all feel guilty about our prayer life, but no one in God's word does? Prayer is supposed to relieve your guilt, not create guilt. It's supposed to make you happy, not sad. And then Swindoll hits it on the nail on the head, and I've never heard this from anyone else. Almost everything we believe about prayer comes from the lives of people who were dissatisfied with their prayer life. None of it comes from the Word of God. We, as Christians, take our cues not from tradition, not from other people. Our source of authority is not Dietrich Bonhoeffer or Martin Luther or George Mueller or any one of another, another thousand great warriors of prayer. Our cues are taken from God's word because no one else's prayer life is our authority. And yet we're still churning out books by the hundreds on people telling about their prayer life. And I say, wonderful, have your books, but that is not your standard. Because if that's your standard, you will feel like a miserable idiot. And you'll all say, oh, I'm so guilty, but my prayer life stinks so bad. That's not what prayer is designed to do. So if you want to know what prayer is really supposed to be about, go to the Word of God. And when you do, you'll be stunned with what you find. Did you know that the longest prayer in the Bible is less than three minutes? I could come up with one much longer than that. (laughs) And you've heard us, people like myself, drone on and on and on. Now, that doesn't mean prayer can't be long, but God's trying to say something. At the end of the service today, Lord willing, we're going to recite the Lord's Prayer. It's about 20 seconds. And that was Jesus' words. Today we're going to look at one of the greatest prayers in the whole Bible. Apart from the prayers of Jesus, which we have recorded for us in John 17, this is probably the greatest prayer in the whole Bible. And you might be shocked with what you find. It's less than three minutes in length. It's short. And it's not maybe what you would expect. But when we think about prayer... Let's learn from God's word. Let's not take our major cues from people, their prayer life. That's their business. This is God's business. 
Daniel chapter 9. We're going to look today at, as I said, one of the greatest prayers in the Bible. I call this powerful prayer because, ooh, this one is powerful. It's stunningly powerful. Just to give you a brief background, in this chapter, chapter 9, it was originally written in Hebrew. And next week, we're going to see, Lord willing, how what happened after Daniel gave this prayer. God is going to give to Daniel the most important passage in the whole Bible on the future. That's next week. It's called the Prophecy of the Seventy Weeks. And, but we know it has some connection with this prayer of Daniel's. It is powerful. This prayer resulted in God giving to this great man, Daniel, probably the most clear vision of what the future will hold that's in the whole Bible. Maybe he saw the future as clearly as anyone except for the Lord Jesus himself. And so this prayer is really, really special. Now, the text of Scripture here in Daniel chapter 9, if you have it, is going to, to, to tell us that it all began with Daniel reading the Bible. You think, well, he didn't have a Bible. Yes, he did. He did have a Bible in scrolls. Remember, Daniel is a very, very, very highly educated man, one of the most educated in the world at that time. He had access because he was at the highest echelon of the greatest powers in the world at the time. He lived in massive luxury. He had access to the scrolls of God's Word. And we know from what he tells us that one day he was reading the scroll of Jeremiah. Not the original of Jeremiah that he wrote, but probably a copy of what Jeremiah originally wrote. And Daniel knew that Jeremiah was a prophet of God. He spoke for God. And so Daniel is pouring over the scrolls of Jeremiah, and that's what prompts him to his prayer. The first principle we're going to look at today is Daniel's prayer began by taking God as his word. It seems to me one of the biggest problems we have with prayer is that we expect God or we ask God to do things he never promised to do. God, make me rich. If I was a rich man, <laughs> like Tevye said in Fiddler on the Roof. And so when God doesn't come through, we get angry with him or abandon him altogether. But the problem is, we expect God to do things that he didn't tell us he would do, or even things he told us he would not do. Prayer needs to be based on Scripture. Because apart from Scripture, we don't know the heart of God. But Scripture tells us God's heart. So Daniel's prayer begins with the Word of God. Here's what it says. In the first year of Darius son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent. Now we know that's around 539 B.C. We know the exact year of this. So 539 B.C. Daniel is in his 80s. He's not a spring chicken. He's an 80-year-old man now. So, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom? In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet. You see, God, Daniel saw Jeremiah as being a spokesman for God himself, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer, in fasting, and in sackcloth, 
and ashes. So here's Daniel. He's reading through the scrolls. He probably didn't have a book like we had. He had scrolls, and he's reading through it. And as, as he reads through the scrolls of Jeremiah, he comes to the place where it says in Jeremiah chapter 25 and 29 that the exile will be 70 years in length. Now, why was the exile 70 years in length? We know why. Guess what? The Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that in 2 Chronicles that God was going to send his people into exile because of their disobedience. But why 70 years? It tells us. Because for 490 years, they had not observed the sabbatical year. So God says, and remember, the sabbatical year, every seventh year, the land was to lay fallow. They were not to plant crops, and God would feed them through the abundance of the previous year, or what grew naturally. But for 490 years, which means their whole history, they never obeyed God's word. God says, so you're not going to obey me. You're not going to let the land go fallow every seven years. Guess what I'll do? I'll take it all at once. I'll take 70 years in a row. And that's what he did. But now Daniel, this brilliant man, remember, he went into exile in 605 BC. And so he's, remember, he knew math. He's, he gets out his pencil and paper and maybe his calculator and, and computer, I think it was. And whoo, the time's almost up. Now, if, if I was Daniel, what would I do? I'd say, hey, friends, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, come here. You've got to see this. You can't believe it. The time's almost up. We're going to go home soon. Let's have a party. That's not what he does. Instead of putting on a party hat, he puts on sackcloth. What's he thinking? That's what he did. He, he started to plead with God. You see, the basis of his prayer is the promises of God. And how do we know the promises of God? Well, we know the promises of God through the Holy Scriptures. Now, why did Daniel bother to pray? Here's a man named Dr. Campbell said this. First, he prayed because the Lord said in connection with the promise of the return, a foreboding may well have gripped Daniel's heart. Because even though the time had come for the end of the Babylonian exile, the Jews were not seeking for God. Many of them were, in fact, too comfortable in Babylon to care about going back to Jerusalem. In the second place, Daniel prayed because he felt he should claim God's promise. The great prayers of the Bible show the saints of old reverently reminded God of his promises. So Daniel's sitting there going, God, I can do the math. I know when you took me into exile, and I know when you... I know what the date is now, and hey, we're getting real close. But my people, we're not ready to go back. We haven't turned our, you put us into exile, but we haven't turned our hearts toward you at all. In fact, most of us don't even want to go back to the promised land. And that broke Daniel's heart. And Daniel took the Bible rather seriously, didn't he? You see, Daniel's prayer began with the promises of God. And the book of the, the Bible is full of the promises of God. And remember, even when we pray the Lord's Prayer, as we, Lord willing, are going to do today, we say, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
What does that imply? It implies that we have some sense of the will of God, and how would we have any idea what the will of God might be? Well, that's what Scripture is for. It gives us a sense of the heart and the will of God. And Daniel had a clear sense of the will of God. God wanted to bring his people back from exile to the promised land, and he was going to do so after 70 years, and the time's almost up, and he claimed the promises of God. That's where he started, but... There was, a problem. there was a problem. I wonder sometimes if one of the reasons that many of our prayers seem so hollow and empty is that they're fundamentally dishonest. Do we really think we can fool the one to whom we pray with our piety? Oh God, listen to me, for I am so righteous. Right? Because now what we're going to see Daniel does after he claims the promises of God Now he's going to confess his complicity. Now remember, how much bad do we know about Daniel in the Bible? Not one thing. He's one of the only people in the Bible. There are about three or four of them. And of course, Jesus is totally different. He's perfect. We don't know of anything Daniel did wrong, ever. Listen to his prayer. This is verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, to all the people of the land. And by the way, in this prayer, the words I, we, and our, our, appear 41 times. Come on, Daniel. Let me redo your prayer. They have sinned and done wrong. They have been wicked and have rebelled. They have turned away from your commands. They have not listened to your servants, the prophets. 41 times. He doesn't say they. He says, me and we. What's he thinking? Well, Daniel identifies himself fully with his people's sin. You know, we, we live in a country in which they say that um, Bella, uh, Robert Bella, the, one of the chief uh, sociologists, that our number one value as Americans is radical individualism. Everything is about me, only me, my rights, my choices. Nothing else matters. Well, that's really a weird concept, by the way. In the rest of the world, they think we're absolutely nuts because we are nuts. Most people around the world have a, a much bigger sense of corporate responsibility communal responsibility that comes from the Bible. You see, when our, when our society goes wacko, it's not because there are wackos out there. It's because I'm a part of that too. Daniel knew deep in his heart that he's part of the problem as well. And if God is going to have mercy and grace, which he's going to plead for, he's got to include himself in the whole thing. Look at, did you see what he, how he contrasted? He said, you God, you're great and you're awesome, but we are wicked and rebellious. You keep your covenants, we break your covenants. You do no wrong, we're riddled with wrong. You send your prophets and we don't listen to the prophets. That's the reality of our, of our existence. 
And remember, God had said through Moses, here's the deal. If you obey me, your lives are going to be so good, you won't even be able to imagine what a great people you will be, what a great nation, and how rich and prosperous and happy you will be. You can't even imagine if you obey me. But if you do not, my, the hand of my judgment will fall on you. I'm going to send you to another land that is not your own. I'm going to shame you. I'm going to discipline you. But thankfully, I'll bring you back home again. And the history of the nation of Israel is God bringing them to the promised land, kicking them out, bringing them back, kicking them out, bringing them back, kicking them out. Why? Because God fulfills his promises. A pure heart, like Daniel had, a pure heart of prayer, identifies with the sinfulness of all humanity because all genuine prayer proceeds from a broken heart. We can come to God broken. We can come to God angry. We can come to God boldly. We can come to God confidently, but we never come before God proudly. Oh, God, those wicked people out there in Riverton. No, no, no. Oh, God, we are wicked. Abraham Lincoln wrote a letter to Albert G. Hodges. And this is what he said. He wrote, I claim not to have controlled events, but confess plainly that events have controlled me. Now, at the end of three years of struggle, The nation's condition is not what either party or any man devised or expected. God alone can claim it. Whither it is tending seems plain. If God now wills the removal of a great wrong of slavery and wills also that we of the north as well as you of the south shall pay fairly for our complicity in that wrong, impartial history will find therein new cause to attest and revere the justice and the goodness of God. Did you hear what he said? Who does he, whose sin does he identify for slavery? Who did he say? Those rotten southerners, of course. No, that's not what he said. We of the north, as well as you of the south. He said, no, we're all complicit in this sin. To what extent do we personally identify with the sins of our culture? Martin Luther said this, I am more afraid of my own heart than of the Pope and all his cardinals. I have within me the great Pope self. Daniel, this great man, after claiming the promises of God, he confesses his complicity in the sin of his nation. But then he fixes turns his focus from his sin to God's goodness. Look what he says next. Lord, this is verse 7, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you, we and our kings, our princes and our ancestors are covered with shame. Lord, because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving. Even though we have rebelled against him, we have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept his laws, the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. God, you are righteous, 
but we are shameless. You are faithful, but we are faithless. You are the lawgiver, but we're the lawbreakers. You are the one who sends the prophets, but we're the one who kills the prophets. That's who we are. But we trust not in our goodness, but in your goodness alone. You see, part of Daniel's prayer is and what, what, we can, what we do so wrong, if we say, oh, God, answer my prayer because I'm so righteous, I'm so good. God, Daniel says, oh, no, no. The only hope we have that you will answer our prayer is because you are so good. You are so gracious because that is not what we're like. Now, how would you know if someone really believes that? How do you know if someone who has sinned and, and pleads for God's mercy How do you know if that's really sincere? That's his next part. Because the next thing he does is, if in fact someone is really sincere with their prayer and truly acknowledges our sin, guess what comes along with the package? You also recognize God has a right to discipline you. Here's what's next. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. You see what he did? He said, we're we're in exile now. We've been out of the Holy Land for, for 70 years. Our land has been destroyed. Our temple has been destroyed, and we have been made servants in a foreign land. And guess what? We deserve every bit of it. Because sin has consequences. And God's forgiveness does not eliminate necessarily the consequences of our sin. A pure heart in prayer accepts the loving discipline of God. And a truly contrite heart accepts the natural consequences of our sin. You see, forgiveness does not eliminate the consequences. Forgiveness is relational. Consequences are legal. A commentator, Ray Stedman, a pastor, said this. One of the major hindrances to prayer is that most of us are angry at God. We do not like what God has done to us. We think we've been treated unfairly. How many of us have caught ourselves in one way or another saying, Lord, why are you doing this to me? Why are you treating me like this? What have I done to deserve this kind of thing? All of that is a subtle way of blaming God, of saying that he is not righteous. You see, the truly godly heart in prayer says, you know, God, the fact that I've got it so good is amazing. I don't deserve that at all. In fact, I, I deserve hell, to be honest. That's what I really deserve. But here you give me a good life, none of which I really deserve, none of which I've earned, none of which I've merited. It's all of your grace. And so the only hope we have is that God is merciful. And that's where he turns next. Now, Lord, our God, this is verse 15, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand, who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned. 
we have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city and your holy hill. Our sins and iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. You see, a pure heart in prayer recognizes that every good gift we have is from the merciful hands of God. And so Daniel doesn't pray, hey, we deserve this now. He says, oh God, please be merciful. There was once um, a mother, apparently this really took place, who approached Napoleon and asking for a pardon for her son who had done something wrong. The emperor replied that the young man had committed a certain offense twice and justice demanded death. But I don't ask for justice, the mother explained. I plead for mercy. But your son does not deserve mercy, Napoleon replied. Sir, the woman cried, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all I ask for. You see, there's justice. That's when you get what you deserve. And there's mercy when you don't get what you deserve. And then there's grace when you get what you never deserve. That's grace. That's what God does. But why? He ends his prayer by giving the ultimate reason. Daniel, I guess, is twisting God's arm with this one. He says, oh God, here's why I want you to answer our prayer. Because ultimately, it's your name that's at stake. Listen to what he says, verse 17. Now our God, hear the prayers and the petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear and open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. Did you pick up the word your? He said, here's the reason I'm making this prayer, because this is ultimately what's at stake, O Lord. It's your sake and your sanctuary and your eyes and your name and your mercy and your city that are at stake. If, in fact, you leave us here and never bring us home, the world will never know that Israel was the promised land that Jerusalem is the chosen city, that the temple is the glorious place of the residence of the holy God of Israel. They'll never know that. They'll never know your name. you got to bring us home. Whoa, that twist in God's arm. <laughs> you see, a pure heart is jealous, above all, for God's character. Daniel says, ultimately, it's not about us, God. It's about you and I want your name to be made great through all the earth. And you got to answer my prayer. Because if you don't, you look like mud. (laughs) And I don't want that. Wow. Well, there's his prayer. (laughs) Wow, what a prayer. It's it's just stunning in every way. What, What do we do with it? That's the question for us today. Let me summarize this way. What is it? What should we learn from Daniel's prayer? First of all, to take God at his word. 
When I see in my Bible a promise that God has made, do I trust him and obey? Taking God at his word. That's what Daniel did. He trusted that what God said was true, and he obeyed. Secondly, do we confess honestly our complicity? When we see someone or someones do things that are morally wrong, do I judge them and ridicule them? Or do I see myself in their sin? When we see our culture or any culture going to hell in a handbasket, do we point figures of accusation? Or do we recognize our own complicity? God wants us to see our complicity and our we're part of the whole of this nation. It's murder of the innocents. It's our fault. It's moral departure from anything God wants is our fault. And on and on we could go. Uh, our country's raising up of leaders that aren't all that good at all. That's our fault. We're complicit in that. And God wants to hear that. That's what Daniel did. Do we acknowledge God's goodness? When things go south, as in, in my life, as they inevitably will do in everyone's life, do we blame God? Or do we ponder Okay, God, I don't like this, but you're up to something, and I know that it's good because you are good. Or do we blame God? Do we accept his discipline? When we feel the hand of God's loving discipline, do we accept the consequences of our sin? Or do we grumble and chase against it? You couldn't, you shouldn't do this to me. I don't deserve this. Oh, is that right? When I'm in pain because of my own sin or the sin of others, Do I beg for God's mercy and grace or try to pull myself up by my bootstraps? Daniel didn't do that. He didn't proclaim his righteousness. He said, God, our only hope is in your mercy and grace. And when I go through my day, do I ever get jealous about God's name? Daniel was jealous for the name of God. He, everything he did was so that God's name would be great. Not our name. It doesn't really matter. That God's name would be great. You see, as I began, so often we take our cues for prayer from things we read in people's biographies, which are nice, but that is not our standard. Our standard is the Word of God. And God gave us this prayer of Daniel's to give us some hints as to what should be involved in our prayer. And by the way, as I said before, It lasts less than three minutes. It's a powerful prayer. A prayer that takes God as his word. It's derived from a humble, very humble heart that acknowledges God's goodness and accepts his discipline, pleads for his mercy and grace because ultimately what's at stake is the glory of God. That is a powerful prayer. Please stand with me and let's end with a prayer. A powerful one. One of the most powerful prayers we could ever say. Because one day Jesus' disciples were asking him, "Uh, Jesus, how do we pray? He says, when you pray, say this. Pray with me. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses 
as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.